Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Neve Witchley and your host of the Medieval Irish History Podcast. This next episode, a little bit of a disclaimer that the audio isn't amazing. It's grand. Um, it's still a brilliant uh interview from uh, Professor Claire Downham but just to bear in mind that it wasn't recorded in the studio so it, it's not up to our usual high standards that we hold ourselves to. I hope you enjoy. Please like, subscribe, rate, review and all the usual if you are enjoying the podcast as that will help us to reach more listeners. Thanks. Welcome back everyone to the Medieval Irish History Podcast and today we're talking all about the Vikings with Professor Clara Downham who is Professor of Medieval History at the Institute of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool. Now this is probably going to be the first of many episodes that focus on the Vikings. So there are just so many juicy topics and fascinating individuals to explore as well as lots of new archaeological and scientific research being undertaken which is changing how we understand their role in Ireland and elsewhere. So today we're just going to start with a bit more of a general introduction to the Vikings in Ireland and primarily from a historical perspective. So, Professor Diana, Claire, um, you have published extensively on the Vikings. Uh, everybody can check out her profile on academia.edu, where uh, you've put up like loads of articles on specific topics, and also you've done some really brilliant kind of blog posts and that kind of thing. Um, but I also highly recommend her book on Vikings, um, Viking Kings of Britain and Ireland, the Dynasty of Ivor to uh, AD 1014. Which was published, Claire, in 2007. So, oh, so long ago. Uh, but it's been reprinted many times since, and it's still, you know, um, one of you know the um, best books on the Vikings. So, welcome, Claire. Thank you. Uh, and will we just start off with a very general, you know, first question? Who were the Vikings, and where were they coming from? Now, you'd think that was a simple question yeah. now, wouldn't you? Um, but actually, yeah, the, the meaning of the term Viking has actually been debated by historians. Yeah. And that's, that's partly because the, the medieval word and how it was used and the modern word mm. and how it's used have kind of diverged. So mm. um, the word Viking was introduced to modern English in, I think, 1807, the beginning of the 19th mm. century is when it first gets recorded. And in the 19th century, the context was very much um, Scandinavian raiders but also uh, within the sort of 19th century evolution of, of nationalism, the idea of Viking nationhood and Scandinavian identity. Whereas I think uh, the medieval term was disassociated from being an, an ethnic label. Uh, a Viking, a Vikinger, was somebody who was a sea rover. So it was very much to do with their mobility and it does have connotations of raiding. Um, but they to, then the idea of, of Viking identity as, a, as a, a national construct or a Viking society, I think would have been mm. alien. So our modern usage and the medieval usage are different, but I think it's important that we do unshackle the word Viking from being an ethnonym. Yeah. Um, and that's partly because of that 19th century development and actually the way the, the Vikings have been co-opted by nationalist mm. movements. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea that Vikings are kind of ethnically pure Scandinavian big burly men with beards, you know, is, is a kind of stereotype, which is a modern development, not quite the same as it meant in the Middle Ages. And I, I don't know if this phrase has been around for a while, but 
I heard it there um, recently uh, used by, I think it was Matthew Vernon in relation to the Black Middle Ages, this phrase, toxic nostalgia, yeah, which I think describes really well you know, how the early Middle Ages in particular, the Middle Ages in general, and the Vikings, as you said, mm. have been co-opted by mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. far-right groups, that there was this time in history where you had, you know, purity of race, let's say in particular, or of identity, that we could somehow get back to, um, if, you know, if we tried hard enough, or, um, but it didn't, you know, especially in relation to migration of peoples. Mm -hmm. This is a brilliant conversation to have today because, talking about Vikings in Ireland, because as you know, I'd say we're going to be discussing it's not all simple um, as them and us uh, and you know, I you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about how relatively quickly we see mm -hmm. individuals mm -hmm. assimilating into our yeah. society. But if I mm -hmm. if I bring you back again then and this is just and I'm sure we can kind of be going back and forth a bit, but so that's a really recent the way we're kinda of, as you said, using Viking as an ethnonym. So that's only mm -hmm. since, you know, the nineteenth century, mm -hmm. let's mm -hmm. say. So what were the first terms then used in, if we go the whole way back to early medieval Ireland, how did the Irish then refer to these people that in our heads we call Vikings? What terms were they using? Yeah, so um, it's quite good that we can actually follow this through um, Irish chronicles because of their near contemporary recording to the events they describe. And what we certainly see in the first decades of contact, so the, the, the early 9th century, um, the very end of the 8th century, uh, the overriding term that's used initially is gente, which just okay. means a heathen. So it's actually the religious difference that was the most striking okay. to people at the time, not not the fact that they spoke a different language mm -hmm. or that they wore different clothes mm -hmm. or they arrived by ship. It was the heathenness which seems to okay. first mark out. You do get, I think, a reference to Almorchev, so the idea of overseas people. Okay. Um, but uh, but gente is the overriding term. And then that gives rise, by the mid-9th century, the dominant term is gal, which just means generically a foreigner okay um so again isn't isn't specific to yeah. to which part of the world they come from but then their their foreignness is maybe more apparent than the religious difference it actually actually shows that conversations are starting to happen i mean the first name of a viking leader is in irish chronicles is 837 which is socks for um okay. um which uh shows that actually rather than just killing each other they they're actually recording names so conversations are starting to happen at yeah. that point when you're starting to converse that's when you start to notice cultural differences and language differences but i think the yeah the initial encounters are the fact that these are heathens okay. and they are trashing churches which is something of course war warfare in irish churches this wasn't something the vikings introduced but maybe uh, this sort of shock element that the Vikings didn't, you know, stop at the, the altar. Do you know what I mean? They're yeah. quite happy to trash a shrine, which I think maybe that would have been a little bit. You get references in Irish Chronicles to um, attacks on churches, but Conodorus, as far as the door, yeah, not. Okay. Whereas you get, for example, um, is it 824 at Bangor? They, they shake the relics mm. of Kovgul from their shrine. And there's that kind of shock factor yeah. to the Irish that, that they are throwing out the most precious thing. Yeah. You know, the, the bones of the saint are the really precious thing. The Vikings are just casting them on the floor. They want the casket. 
Um, they they can't. You know what I mean? This cultural implication. Yeah. You can imagine the Viking. Wow, this is a lovely casket. Opening it up, expecting there to be an even greater treasure yeah. inside, and they're like, "Well, <laughs> this is a bone. What the well, hell is that doing here?" You know. I love how that is depicted in the TV show Vikings. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen any of it. No, I'm terrible. So I I yeah. Um, they do the attack on Lindisfarne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I get my students to watch. There's you know just kind of a five minute clip of how does the modern depiction, bearing in mind, of course, that TV is for entertainment mm-hmm. primarily amongst a lot of other things, but also some of the sources that we have about Vikings, um, you know, like the War of the Irish Against Foreigners, mm-hmm. the Coca-Cola Regalif, that's also, you know, an entertainment piece as in, you know, it's a literary piece. Um, so we can't take that at face value either, the same way as you can't take a TV show now. But it is interesting. What I do like the way they depict in that show, exactly what you've just described there, that they are like, these are just bones. I don't understand. Why is this your most precious thing? It's all the gold and precious metals, mm. obviously, that are important here. You touched on so many interesting things that I wanted to pick up on further there where you were talking. Um, one was I kind of wanted to note, this podcast is not about focusing on dates and figures, but dates and figures are often really helpful for historians and in teaching history for that we have somewhere you know context is all important so that we can place things within context of of uh, events elsewhere or developments and 837 if we just bear in mind so you're mm. saying there that the you know so you have you mentioned a record in 837 of how we can see that you know the name there that they were interacting at that mm. point and if i just want listeners to bear in mind 1014 is the battle of clontarf mm-hmm. so just to consider that that's when you have these narratives being built up about the war of the Irish against the foreigners. And if people just have a pause a moment, 837 to 1014, mm. that's a very long time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Vikings uh, were, you know, in Ireland for such a long time by the time we get to 1014. Um, but something I'd love for you to talk just a little bit more about, just to give um, some of that background context that you discussed, that the Vikings didn't introduce violence and attacks on churches and on what we now would kind of term Mm -hmm. civilians Mm -hmm. um so and that's kind of a little bit of a misnomer that i think some people might or may not have Mm -hmm. about the vikings Mm -hmm. um so can you talk a little bit more about that and 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 maybe touch on for me another thing that i i feel that people associate that something that the vikings introduced you know something like slaves you know Mm -hmm. slavery Mm -hmm. um, and Mm -hmm. slave trading and that kind of thing um, so I don't know if you want to um, expand on that a little, but just on what the society was like. So were, were right. the Vikings, were, what they were doing, was it radically different to what was going on in Ireland? Yeah, that's beforehand? a really good question. So, I mean, obviously the, the nature of, of Irish politics before the Viking arrived is, is there's, there's multiple kinglets, uh, there are multiple kings in Ireland uh, loosely arranged under these provincial over kingships. Um, but the church was so politically embedded in Irish society mm. as well that inevitably churches got drawn into warfare. And we've actually got records at the end of the 8th century and early 9th century of churches putting armies in the field mm. and even rivalries between churches having this kind of military dimension. Um, and so I think well, I think that's important to remember as well. So we tend to always think of Vikings as very much this aggressor-victim relationship, but also mm. from quite an early stage, Irish were effectively fighting back against Vikings. Mm. And we have to remember that unlike England, Vikings didn't take large swathes of land in Ireland. So the Irish mm. were actually very effective at, at fighting back. Um, but yes, uh, so violence wasn't new uh, to, to Irish society. 
uh, the church was um, you know in, involved um, in violence when when the Vikings arrived so um, so I think we can sort of over exaggerate the Vikings as a watershed in in Irish history um, so how much did the Vikings change and actually um, slavery was there in our society before Vikings arrived as St. Patrick mm -hmm. well exemplifies um, and as we can see in the body of early Irish law the fact that Vikings marketized slavery and, and made it more of an international trading commodity changed the character of the slave trade in Ireland so in other words I think you've got these pre-existing trends I mean another mm -hmm. one is Vikings and urbanization yeah. and Vikings as as introducing the town to Ireland which again sounds like it's a, a foreign import but actually we can see the Vikings more as catalysts drawing on existing trends in Irish society and taking them in a new direction so if we go back to the matter of towns it's not the Vikings introduced a town a town just doesn't grow like a mushroom from mm -hmm. the ground there needed to be an underlying sophistication to the Irish economy before urbanization could happen and Vikings Vikings were simply catalysts in that process. So I think sometimes the the idea of everything changes once a new group comes to Ireland is just a little bit too simple. Mm -hmm. And I think we should see Vikings more of catalysts. And as you've well pointed out, the simple us them binaries mm -hmm. don't don't work. Certainly not by the time of Clontarf. And the Vikings and Irish integrated, yeah. and it's that synthesis which is to me the fascinating thing. You know, it's those grey areas of history, isn't it? Rather than the simple binaries that where all the fascinating stuff happens. Yeah, big time. And so let's say so we've established then that the earliest written sources. So we're going to try and focus on purely on the written sources mm. as much as possible today. And I'll introduce or I'll interview a an archaeologist, yeah. you know, for, mm -hmm. for, for a later episode. What's our first indication then, or is this a fair question, that we have any kind of identifying, you know, mention in the written sources, the Irish written sources, that where these people were coming from? Okay, so, you know, we're picturing them mm. as Scandinavians, mm -hmm, and you can mm -hmm, maybe tell yeah. us a bit about that. Mm -hmm. But if we were only looking at the medieval yeah. Irish written sources, would we have any, you know, since they're just expressed as foreigners or as heathen, as non-Christians, when do we get any indication of where they're actually coming from? Well, we get this term Lachlan, which okay. is introduced by the 840s. Okay. Um, um, but even where Lachlan specifically means geographically has been a matter of debate. So some okay. people say, well, that's Scandinavia, um, because, uh, uh, well, uh, well, Lachlan, sorry, Lachlan and mm. Lachlan, two slightly interchanging mm. terms. Um, and and uh, so Lachlan later means Norway. We get this okay. earlier term Lachlan, and it's not clear if it's exactly the same. And it's been variously argued, well, that's Scandinavia, or it's been argued that that's the Hebrides. Okay. Um, and it's quite clear that this phenomenon we call Vikings is involved with Scandinavian culture yeah. and, and Old Norse language and so on. But it's it's not, you know, the, the, the culture and the biology are, are two separate things. Um, and so, you know, we, we've got the spread of this Scandinavianized culture. Um, and then I think, yeah, there is this aspect of of links with the broader viking diaspora so there's an awareness that these people come from the north okay that's a term that's also okay. uh, used um and but of course as vikings spread out they, they could as well be vikings from england okay. involved in affairs in ireland as vikings coming directly from scandinavia um so i think it's a cultural phenomenon which is associated with scandinavia but doesn't always have to come from that point of origin and 
Um, I know that we have a number of terms then used in the Irish sources, which you've written very well about, but are things that are still kind of debated, but like the fair foreigners mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the dark foreigners, mm -hmm. the Fingal mm -hmm. and the Dulcal. Mm -hmm. um, and can you, so what we're kind of seeing then is maybe a distinction between different types of these. Mm -hmm. Again, mm -hmm. what we're terming Vikings, but mm -hmm. the terms that they're using are kind of the, yeah, the, the fair and the dark foreigners. So, yes, it is very interesting to see in Irish records the emergence of rival Viking groups. And I, I think what you can see is this dynamic uh, that this, this differentiation between Viking groups emerges in the 840s, which is the same time when we're starting to get the first alliances recorded between the Vikings and the Irish. Mm. Um, and so what you find is you've got, you know, Irish kings rivalry with each other. They're introducing the Vikings as an element. So you could ally with the Vikings against your Irish enemy. Uh, but then we start seeing as soon as the Vikings settle, they also start fighting amongst themselves. So, you know, that that. That's fascinating, um, but it, again, it shows the breaking down of those simple binaries. It's yes. not just us versus yeah. them. Now, in terms of, of Dufgal and Fingal, it shows that there's two rival groups of Vikings operating on two major Irish groups. There must rival Viking groups, and there must have been others as well. But that's that's a sort of battleground uh, between rival groups. And the thing is, is that um, by the 11th century. That distinction between Dovgal and Fingal, which we get recorded, for example, in the fragmentary annals of Ireland, is being perceived as a rivalry between um, national Viking groups, between Danes and Norwegians. Okay. Now, I would suggest that's a little bit anachronistic because Denmark and Norway weren't formed as nations in the 9th century, okay. but they were by the 11th century, that these would have been distinct identities. So I think there's a risk always in history, isn't there, mm. of projecting our modern yeah. understandings of the world, our modern categories and our modern politics yeah. on events of the past. So um, Dovgal and Fingal probably meant in the context of the time you get this dark light referencing to other groups between old and new. And that was something that was okay. first written about by, by Alfred Smith. He suggested that these are a newer group of Vikings and an older group of Vikings. Okay. Um, and, and that's how I see it too. Yeah, so not fair-haired and dark-haired, yeah. but old and new. I mean, if you think about it, this is how it was often perceived of, wasn't it? That the fair Vikings meant fair-haired yeah. and dark Vikings meant dark-haired. But can you really imagine just an army of people with just one hair colour? And that there would be no mixing between different groups of, of Scandinavians. So that the blondes, yeah. Norwegians would never deal with that. It, just, it does, doesn't make Team sense. Team colours. Yeah. yeah. But mm. it's funny because you, when, you, when, we, when we talk about aspects mm. of medieval mm. history and say specifically Irish history, you talk about it out loud. You go, that obviously doesn't make any logical sense. Like anthropologically, why mm. would you have, you know, you can only fight with the, with the, with the blonde bearded men. Um, but that is how so many people look at kind of, you know, the distant past, that it is so kind of clear cut and binary. And of course, once you dig into it, mm -hmm. uh, it's obvious that it could never have been that way. But it's funny how these ideas, you know, become pervasive. I love to talk a little bit more about that. So is it fair, is it unfair then, let's say in Ireland, um, for people to imagine, okay, so the Vikings, uh, say in different towns like Dublin, for example, where we're sitting in right now, um, oh, that that they were coming from Norway or Denmark. So you mentioned Norway and Denmark didn't exist back then. So is it unfair then for us to think in those terms of Norwegians and Danes? No, not, not really, because I think we always, I mean, you know, uh, we do tend to use modern categories yeah. in talking about the past. And the term Norway had already evolved. It just wasn't, I wouldn't say, a, a unified 
nation and uh, you know again we've got very much this nation building narratives of the 19th century and you know the cult of Harold Feinherr and mm. how much of Norway did he really unite and so on so uh, de debated territory but I suppose I've, I've just wanted to sort of challenge some of those um, those national stereotypes now geographical sense would tell you that that you know if you were coming from Scandinavia to Ireland it's more likely that many of them would have traveled from the western seaboard of what we call Norway okay. rather than all the way from Denmark but to suggest that somehow these were groups that were distinct mm -hmm. and you know uh, when when Vikings set out from Scandinavia the, the Norwegians only turned right to go mm -hmm. over the coast of Scotland and the Danes only turned left to hit the coast of England and that therefore and you see this you you can see maps of Vikings in in Britain and Ireland where they color code where the Danes and Norwegians were with these nice boundaries and arrows and it just wasn't like that but I yeah. mean this is something where you talked uh, in your introduction about you know modern scientific techniques and I, I know this might be reserved for a discussion with an archaeologist but things you know like isotope and DNA analysis are showing us without doubt that, that Vikings were a, a mixed category yeah. that, that the thing that that defines the Viking Age um, is the mobility of peoples, yeah. which means the mixing of people. So that therefore, you know, people joined the Vikings, people went from one area to another, they adopted Viking culture. Um, yeah, it, it just doesn't hold that everybody sits within their nice ethnic type for yeah. later historians to use as categories. And really that desire to categorisation tells us more about the the, the emotional and political needs of, of 19th century identity politics than it actually can tell us about affairs in the 9th century. Oh, and I'm really glad you said that because I suspect that's going to be a bit of a theme running through many of the episodes in this podcast because so many, yes, some, so much of our understanding of the Irish Middle Ages is formed by um, kind of nationalism or you know different kind of um, political events in the 19th and 20th centuries and you 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 touch on there but we, you know we we can talk about it just uh, you know a little bit that well I suppose you already have but just that there was a this big recent DNA study it was it published in was it actually published in 2020 yeah. it was published in nature mm -hmm. but it got massive media mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I was just looking up there if I have the exact dates but anyway it was published in nature where they did a, ma a big DNA study I say big actually I think they it only huge, I, I think actually. in Ireland yeah. it was only yeah. a, it was actually only a handful of individuals yeah. um, that they actually examined the DNA but it was seen you know this big media storm that oh it's shocking there's you know the yes Viking identity. It's Viking you know, grave, but it's not Scandinavian. Yeah, but yeah. It, you know, they're, so. they, were, they were complex and mm -hmm. multi-ethnic and everything. And I think everybody who has been working in the field for years was like, I mean, we already knew this from the actual medieval sources, but it's great to have it backed up now by these new scientific advances. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and, uh, and paired with that, of course, is, is, you know, isotope analysis where they can take samples from, you know, the dentine in people's teeth to find yeah. out where they grew up. Grew up, yeah. And then, you know, where they may have been dug up later could be two different locations so you can start to develop biographies and mm. I, I that takes us to the individual in in medieval history which of course is always quite hard to track down mm. we get the names of kings but through through archaeology we compare that with we've, we've we've got the remains of an individual and we can start through scientific techniques to tell their life story mm. you know their their ancestry mm. the identification of the objects that they're buried with how they moved around in their mm. life um, I think that's fascinating and to just to 
again, just to tie in how we as historians kind of uh, incorporate and understand mm. these, as I said, kind of new archaeological and kind of scientific investigations, something that is kind of hot right now, um, you know, or kind of fashionable or new works on understanding the market network networks mm -hmm. and the market economy and everything mm -hmm. um, of the Vikings and you know like Tom Horn mm -hmm. and Kristen mm -hmm. Koonmans, um and different people are looking specifically as well you know looking at silver yes. and how it traveled around mm -hmm. the so-called Viking world mm -hmm. and what that tells us and so I I didn't know if you wanted to kind of comment on that about what you know there's interesting things especially in relation to Ireland you touched on the territory that the Vikings covered a lot of territory or took over a lot of territory in England that we don't see happening in Ireland mm -hmm. um, you know I think I don't want to put words in their mouth but they're kind of arguing that part of the reason why it doesn't happen in Ireland is because they're setting up markets mm -hmm. you know so they're setting up somewhere like Dublin for mm -hmm. example mm -hmm. of their other places in mm -hmm. Ireland of course um, as a market it, tapping into a, mm -hmm. kind of a, a nodal point on mm -hmm. you know their whole mm -hmm. market network mm -hmm. and they didn't necessarily have a desire to take over um, mm -hmm. significant mm -hmm. territories. What do you do you want to comment on that? What do you think I of that? I partly disagree because yeah. the land was ultimately the yeah. basis of power in the Middle Ages and I think what you see in the 840s from mm -hmm. a close reading of the Chronicles is there isn't a concerted attempt yeah. you know we've got as it I think it's 841 60 ships come through yes. the River Liffey, 60 ships come. And it looks like this is a pincer movement to yeah. try and encircle and capture in our territory. And then you've got the expeditions of this Viking Turgesius, Thurgles, that becomes legendary, written yeah. about by Gerald of Wales and others, uh, of this campaigns down the River Shannon in the 840s. Now he's captured and drowned by Balmel Shechnel, the Inail Overking, in the mid 840s. And I kind of feel that that attempt. Um, to conquer land in Ireland um, was was disrupted, um, mm -hmm. and it was partly very difficult to do because because Ireland politically was much less centralised than England. England, you know, bam, 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 you've got three or four kingdoms down, you've got most of the country in mm -hmm. Ireland, you know, you capture one kingdom, right? <laughs> then you have to capture the next, yeah. keep going. Then, then you have to deal with the kinetonic. Actually, that decentralisation <laughs> yeah. was 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 uh, an actual asset in terms of defending Ireland. It gave Ireland a resilience against the Viking attacks. And I feel after those attempts in the eight forties, and to add to that, we've also got rec reference to the pilgrimage of an Irish king going to Rome mm. to thank God for you know mm -hmm. defeating the Vikings. So I feel that was a critical period where they tried and failed. Okay. And then after that, it's like, well, okay, so we can't take large-scale land holdings, yeah. but we can colonise economically. Okay. And in England, they did both because okay. they took over large kingdoms like Northumbria, but then they also developed York. So I don't think it's, oh, they didn't want Ireland. I think yeah. they tried and they didn't get it. Okay. So then they retreated back to, we'll just develop the urban, urban centres. Yeah. And that became the focus, that became the hallmark of Viking identity in Ireland was, was urban growth. And in that sense, what was a Viking, what Vikingness represented is more of an economic phenomenon yeah. than uh, an ethnic phenomenon. And the comparison I would make to that, um, sort of wrote an article about diaspora mm. identities, is that, you know, for example, if you think of the way that, that Englishness in the modern world is a lingua franca for business, Right, mm. so English culture becomes a, a business, it becomes an economic thing. But the mm. people speaking English in Singapore to do business aren't adopting an English identity, they're adopting yes, okay. a language yeah. for business and a suit for business, the yeah. Western suit. You know, so it's in other words, you, you, not all identity is about ethnicity. Quite a lot of identity is about social positioning, economic positioning. And to me, that's 
partly what the Vikings become in Ireland. It's an economic identity. Mm. It's a, it is associated with urbanisation, but also a more eclectic culture and these links to the wider Viking diaspora. I want to ask you some more um, serious questions, uh, but just as you're talking so kind of passionately about this, I'm dying to ask you now more casually, what's your favourite thing about the Viking Slayer or like about Viking Ireland or any key individuals or events or anything? What, you know, gets you excited about I think it is when, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've always loved medieval history because I feel it's, it's, um, it's the mystery. Yeah. We, you know, we, we've got just, you know, these, these pieces of a puzzle. Yeah. We don't have the picture on the box. Yeah. And we've got to try and reconstruct. And I love that. So when I was a kid, I loved reading. The detective uh, story Detective all. stories. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what got me hooked. Um, but, but also within that, I love it when we get glimpses of the individual. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, one of my favourite sources on early Viking Ireland is the life of St. Findan, because it's this very okay. personal narrative of an Irish chieftain yeah. who grows up in Leinster, um, and he has different encounters with Vikings during yeah. his lifetime, and it just personalises the whole story of the Vikings. We talk about this very big phenomenon, but then it's through the individual story that we have a prism to deeper understanding of the mechanisms of what's really going on at the time um yeah so um should i just tell you about this the life of saint Fendon? Or, do, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah so if we think it was uh that was written at the towards the end of the ninth century maybe 870s 880s okay. but it recounts events in the 840s so Fendon was a, a chieftain who grew up in in leinster his first encounter with vikings is that his sister has been captured by the vikings okay. and he sent by his father to pay a ransom to release her. Mm. That fits perfectly with mm. Irish chronicle records of the 840s that refer to mm. you know, the capture of high status individuals. So even if this is a made up story, it is the kind of the details the that are expressed. Fits, yes, yeah. fits very well. So, okay. And I think that's quite canny because we hear of Vikings yeah. as slave raiders, but initially they were into hostage taking. Because yeah. if you think about it, you know, if somebody kidnaps my brother, he might not be great as a slave, not at his peak fitness, you know, yeah. he's, he's kind of into middle age, but he's worth a lot more to his family mm -hmm. than he would be on the open market, and they will pay more. So they, they capture high-status people and ransom them back. So Finden goes along. Now, this is also interesting because, you know, if there's a truth to the story, it suggests there must be interpreters already working in this mid-ninth century mm. to help these negotiations take place. And... Finton is captured by the Vikings so when he comes to pay the ransom. Then there's this ethical debate amongst the Vikings. Should we let Finton go? And it said, oh, inspired by the grace of God, they released him. But actually, the subtext is that they were saying, it's not good business if you capture the people coming to pay ransom, so they let him go. Okay. The next thing that happens to Finden, um is that uh, his family and another Irish family have sort of been involved in a bit of a blood feud. Um, and a resolution has taken place but the other side, Finden's enemies, are, aren't entirely sure that everything's sorted out. So they then arrange with a group of Vikings to capture Findan. So Vikings are operating as okay. hitmen. Yeah. You know, if you want somebody to disappear, yeah. um, you get the Vikings. And mercenaries. And also, and if you think well. clever as well, breaks the whole kind yeah. of uh, legal compensation thing as well. Because if he's captured and carried off by Vikings, there's no yeah. lawful legal We'll recourse. be talking about that mm -hmm. in another episode as well, about yeah. how that that compensatory aspect of mm -hmm. Irish law, mm -hmm. but sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, so they basically, the, the thing is they, they invite 
Finden to, I think, at a feast, mm. which must be by the coast. So, And, of course, we all know, you know, big, an invitation to dinner. Yeah. <laughs> High status of medieval politics yeah. can be a bit ambivalent. So he gets carried off by the Vikings, and then he gets sold on. So that also tells us about the mechanisms of the early slave trade. It's not like Finden is captured and then carried to Scandinavia. There are obviously people buying and selling mm-hmm. slaves at several different routes in the journey. He then gets involved in a sea battle between the people who've captured him and another group of Vikings, uh, okay. which, again, 840s rivalry between different Viking groups. Yeah. Um, he ends up on the Orkney Islands um, and, and he escapes at that point and he hides um, and then the one part of the story that to me becomes the implausible bit is that is that he has to swim from, from the place where he is, this barren island where he's you know starving and he needs to get away and he sort of miraculously floats across um, uh, of course yeah. <laughs> and, and it, but it's interesting because that, that's the point at which in the story Finden says well if I escape this I will devote my life to God and he escapes from the Vikings. So you wonder, is this him rationalising later? Because apparently the story was written by somebody who knew Finden and they've got this account from him. Okay. So did he imagine later, oh, it was only through a miracle that mm. I was able to make it across mm. the water? Or maybe they're like, it's not a proper saint's life unless it's a miracle, yeah. so we need to kind of elaborate. It could stuff. be both. Yeah. could be both. Yeah. Um, so Finden escapes and then devotes his life to God and yeah. he ends his life in Rhinau as a monk. And then an account of his life is written about within 10 years of his death. And it's okay. thought to have been written by somebody who was an acquaintance of the saint. And this is why we get this you know, biographical narrative of, of Finden's life and his encounters with the Vikings. Yeah. Okay, That's one of my favourite sources. Yeah, because <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, there's, we have to have you on again because there are so many more things um, I want to talk about. But just when you're talking about that, like... Uh, I'm always saying to people like I'm I don't understand how a movie like a big Hollywood movie hasn't been made based on the Kugagwelway Gollum because know. it's already <laughs> so, so it's the, as I, we referred to before it's you know it's a literary text it's mm-hmm. the war of the Irish against the foreigners but that's already a screenplay um, and as you and a number of other historians have shown you know it's based on the annals so even mm-hmm. though it's a it's a it's a literary depiction mm-hmm. of the rise of Brian Boru. Uh, the career of Brian Boru and you know his so-called you know death at the hands mm. you know of Vikings, but this uh, you know this binary between them. It's not even expressed necessarily. In some ways, in the big themes, it's the binary of of the Irish against the foreigners. But then they get into all the juicy soap mm. opera stuff about how everyone's actually kind of interrelated, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. these are relationships that have been going on for generations. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I love Citric Silk and Beard. I'll have to mm-hmm. do an episode on him at some point. Um, you know, I say he's you know gets my vote as you know top Dubliner of all time because I feel like he really creates this identity of kind of Dublin. Yes. But anyway. But the Cuckoo Regalov, it's already it's it's based on earlier like as you said with the life from the the, the chronicles mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm. these sources. Um but it's 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 a dramatic telling yes. of these events. So it's just the characters are so well drawn, they're not necessarily true to how they would have been as historical individuals, but they're definitely colourful mm-hmm. and engaging characters. It's just it's already you don't even you just need, need to get to a right try. you don't need to do that there. much you just yeah. need a great cast you've and got the scripting as well I mean, there's so many really good set speeches in so that song many and, and the chess yeah. game mm-hmm. oh, anyway so it's yeah it's all there um but i just a couple of things before we go i i wanted to ask you what do you feel this is a really genuine question for me now and when i'm teaching students and i've been railing a little bit against sometimes the period periodization of history and mm-hmm. it's necessary mm-hmm. sometimes but we kind of have sometimes in relation to Ireland, it, it marks us out as different to developments elsewhere, where, mm-hmm. 
you you know it used to be and we don't use this term mm. anymore but it used to be early Christian Ireland mm-hmm. um, and then Viking Age mm-hmm. Ireland mm-hmm. and then Anglo-Norman mm-hmm. Ireland mm-hmm. right um, so sometimes I'm a little bit unfair on people who talk about Viking Age Ireland just because I don't like it as I said in the that's yeah. broader, broader mm-hmm. context that mm-hmm. oh it's just the early Middle Ages or the you know the Middle Ages mm-hmm. and are the same as mm-hmm. every, anywhere else is that fair of me to say listen the, the, there's no such thing as Viking Age Ireland or am I no I, I agree to a certain extent because I think it is a, a problem uh, you know in history these periodizations because mm-hmm. it, it does create crude simplifications but in relation to Irish history it over exaggerates external influence as mm-hmm. being the agents of change so mm-hmm. early Christian Ireland changes dramatically with the introduction of Christianity no, no doubt it did but mm-hmm. it kind of but then it's followed by the Vikings who then you know cause change and then the English who then cause change and I think what what that kind of then denies is the agency of internal mechanisms of change within Ireland you know uh, as if Ireland is a blank sheet on which stuff is written rather than Ireland actually synthesizing engaging drawing on and creating new things and I think that that process really needs to be elevated more Um, and, and obviously you know this story of Ireland's contribution uh, to European history, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's how Ireland took inspiration from outside Ireland, but created something new with it. Yeah. Um, and if, for example, with the Vikings, you know, Hiberno-Scandinavian identity becomes very prestigious across the Viking world, yeah, um, and very influential. Um, you know, um, so you know, you've got aspects of of Irish ornament influencing Viking art, the the wearing of the ring pin, which is a, an Irish uh, ornamental form mm. of jewellery, which is then adopted into the repertoire of Viking identity. For example, Lanza Meadow in Newfoundland, yeah. it was a, a Viking style ring pin that that helped identify the site as a Viking site. Yeah, wow. um, so you know, so I think that the danger is with that periodization. If it's like everything is characterized by people coming in, then then as I say, it diminishes the agency of change within Ireland of itself, but also Ireland's influence outside. Yeah. Um, and as you said, so we have the fir- earliest records of these people, you know, coming and raiding in Ireland. Let's say the late and, and wider in the British Isles, the late seven nineties. Then we have raiding activity going on for a few decades. But by the 830s, this is already changing. So a few decades in, Mm. it's becoming a little bit more complicated than just, you know, hit and runs and that kind of thing. So quite quickly, Mm -hmm. we kind of see a little bit more assimilation and even on a political level mm-hmm. in certain Viking leaders dealing yeah, with Irish exactly. kings. And that could be quite calculated from the Irish perspective too yeah. because if Vikings turn up on your territory, you yeah. know, well, what do you do? I mean, you know, you, you could fight them yeah. uh, uh, but that's quite a high-risk strategy. Yeah. Or you could ally with them and use them against your other enemies. That's kind of a smart thing to do. You yeah. know? And yet later, you know, later historians have kind of judged this by, oh, it's somehow being a traitor to Irishness. But they, they, they weren't thinking in that framework. They were thinking in their local politics and survival that this was useful agency, of the, of, you know, to, to draw on the Vikings, incorporate them and then deploy them. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that is what gives rise to these early alliances. It suits both sides for that to happen. And, you know, as I say, blurs those ethnic boundaries. Yeah. OK, brilliant. And as well, I think it gives a really kind of you know Dublin centric focus or you know Dublin Limerick you know the Viking cities mm. Cork um, Waterford Wexford that yes there were you know what became you know, her, the words were Hibern or Norse um, towns but 
it doesn't mean that the rest of the country necessarily, you know, if you were, you know, put a pin in Longford, you mm-hmm. know, how how much, you know, were they, you know, overrun with, you know, so-called Vikings, you know. So by calling a Viking age Ireland, you're saying like that the whole country, you know, there's a kind of change, uniform yeah, label. There's yeah. uniform label over the, over, over the whole country. Um, okay, brilliant. Um, we're nearly out of time. And as I said, there are so many things to discuss, but hopefully we'll get you on again to discuss something maybe more specific. Like we might look at one individual or event in mm-hmm. more detail. Um, was there anything, before I kind of ask you a couple of last things, was there anything particular you wanted to, um, that I kind of overlooked or that you had any, you know, burning desire to... No, I mean, it's, yeah. it's fascinating talking to you, but yeah. as I say, there's so many other potential avenues, I can't think of just oh, one or two yeah. points just to cover the Viking Age. Or, yeah, there's you know. <laughs> so much. Um, the one thing that we're kind of asking in this podcast, but it's not in hugely appropriate here, is just um, about, is there any particular myth in relation to the Vikings in Ireland that you'd like to debunk? Because I think the whole episode is about, you know, <laughs> myth-busting. Um, yeah. But is there anything that particularly... Not, it doesn't even have to necessarily be in relation to Ireland, but is there any kind of myth in relation to Vikings that you haven't already touched on that frustrates you? Uh, I mean, one of the things that, that, again, modern research, I think, is 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 tackling um, is, is gender in the Viking yes, Age. Right. So the way that mm-hmm. it tends to be... The Viking Age, where men were men and women knew their place, you know, and and so it's really only since the work of scholars like Judith Jess and Jenny Yockens from the 1980s onwards that that the agency of women in the Viking Age um, has been understood. Um, And obviously, we had this sensational discovery, you know, which I think got publicised from 2017 onwards of this famous warrior grave. So it was called in Berka, this grave that was full of weapons. and uh, seemed to be the archetypal Viking warrior. And then DNA studies show this is a woman. This is biologically a woman in this grave. And, and whilst there were many attempts to say, oh, well, you know, she must have been buried with her husband, but the band's body is missing and all those ways of trying to explain around it. Um, yeah, so I, I think, in other words, the, the things that, that sort of the irritating stereotypes mm. of, of, of ethnic simplicity, nationalism, masculinity... I feel that we're at this lovely time of change yeah. when these things are being investigated and questioned. And I think that makes it very exciting uh, time to be doing this subject. And I'm really glad you brought that up because mm-hmm. I think that is will as well be a bit of a, a unifying theme across the podcast in that there is a, still a resistance to, as you've enunciated in relation to that Berka grave, a resistance among you know academics <laughs> to, in the face, to, to accept... That this a woman, you know, this could have been a woman, or a woman could have wrote this source, or mm-hmm. you know, a woman could have been involved in this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's still a resistance to, in the face of mm-hmm. you know, kind of you know, fairly robust evidence, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, well, you know, and, and and I know that it was initially decades and decades ago, you know, they were saying, well, there must have been a man in the grave somewhere, blah blah blah. Um, but because uh, I'm finding it now in relation to so many things, for example, Bridget, you mm-hmm. know, you've, mm-hmm. I have a lot of there's a lot of male scholars who have traditionally said uh, that Bridget didn't exist um, when there is more evidence for her than most of the other men that were male mm-hmm. saints at the same mm-hmm. time. And it's mm-hmm. like, why are you singling out mm-hmm. Bridget? Mm-hmm. Um, and even when I say it now to them, and I'm, I'm like, okay, well, here's my 10 pieces of evidence mm-hmm. of why Bridget mm-hmm. is real. They're like, mm-hmm, yeah, no, that's all fair enough. But, you know, was she? And I'm like, there's, there's, still, um, there's still a resistance and understanding. And even in relation now to our 
current mm. project project in Clonard. Uh, I think there's a you know, a fairly reasonable argument to be made that the Latin life of uh, Finian was either written by a woman or at the behest of a woman or for women. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're really mm -hmm. centered in that mm -hmm. that Latin life mm -hmm. uh, of Finian. And I've been you know saying this at a couple of conferences this year, you know, and it's a bit like, oh, you're going out in a limb there. It's like. Why? We mm. have evidence for female writers. We know from other sources that they yeah. did learn how to uh, uh, write. So it's not that shocking. We know that there was female communities. There would have been texts written mm -hmm. as, mm -hmm. you know, with those communities as the audience. But there's still a resistance yeah. to centering mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. the narrative because it's yeah. just been done the other way for so, so long. long. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's challenging the norm. And, and yeah, it's this point of forgetting that. Yeah, fifty percent of the population was women, so they they did they were there. They were there, <laughs> um, but I don't know. And I know your former PhD student um, Danica has a exciting book. She coming does, out. yes, on Viking and ecclesial yeah. interactions around the Irish Sea. Yeah, so we really. Uh, so the, the springboard for that was Danica's doctoral work, where yeah. she's looking at the presence of furnished Viking Age burials in an ecclesiastical context, because a lot of people would say that well, that doesn't make sense yeah. because that's what people would regard as a pagan burial in a yeah. churchyard and often that was seen where it was identified as somehow an appropriation or a slight whereas I think Danica's analysis is to say well actually no this is more evidence of integration okay. between Vikings and the authorities we'll of the church. have to get her on. Absolutely like, yeah. yeah. What I was going to say was just when we were and, and she popped into my head just that in relation to women I don't know are there any and you know people can you know can email and that kind of thing mm -hmm. are there any people who are looking specifically at uh, you know women Viking women in the Irish context you know and doing any kind of like more kind of detailed case studies um, well watch the space yeah okay like a new PhD Yay, um, okay, Han brilliant. Hannah Evans who, okay. who is exactly going to be working on that but but not so much from the presence of women in Viking army so I've got yeah. a PhD student Betty West who's working okay. on the presence of women in Viking army camps in England England. Okay. Um, and she has incorporating some evidence from Woodstown in that. Okay. Um, but Hannah's going to be looking at the economic agency of women in Viking Ireland. Oh, okay. Amazing. So and did she, she just started recently? She's she? in her first year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yes, as you said, watch this space. So mm -hmm. much more to come. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's really exciting. Thank you so much, Claire. Um, okay. My it's pleasure. Been, yeah, a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you everyone for listening. If you are enjoying the podcast, please let us know. You can follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at Early Irish Pod. You can email us medievalirishhistory at gmail.com. Please like, subscribe, review, rate, etc., as that will help us to reach more listeners. And you will hear from us again in two weeks' time. Bye. Happy Christmas. Mm -hmm.